This is Leveling the Playing Field, and I am Bobby Sue Doyle Hazard. Every 98 seconds, an American is sexually assaulted. In this second part of the interview with Carrie Potts, Senior Director of Communications for ESPN, we discuss her sexual assault, how she managed to jump down roofs to escape, and all of the hoops she had to jump through in order to get justice while in the United States and her assault had occurred in Italy. This may be a tough episode if you've experienced sexual violence. Please do what you need to do by way of self-care, including not listening if you deem that best. For resources, please visit rain at R-A-I-N-N dot org or call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. And again, that number is one 800 656 HOPE. They also have an online chat if you're unable to speak on the phone. One other thing before we get into the episode I realized while listening to this that I do something that I think many of us do during uncomfortable conversations or moments. I attempt to make light, joke, or nervously giggle. This hasn't been edited out. And maybe by calling myself out, you'll hear it if you do it. I had to take some time to reflect on why this is my reaction. Part of it could be that I'm naturally inclined to attempt to make others feel better or joke with a joke or something. The other part is because I've personally experienced sexual violence and I'm not completely comfortable talking about my own experiences. Um, I have to remind myself that when people are confiding in me or talking about painful topics, that it's not my job to make them feel better. And what I'm supposed to be doing and what my job in that moment is, is just to listen. And that can be really hard for someone who likes to try and fix things. So this is something that I will continue to work on. And it's something I wanted to point out because maybe you'll notice it in yourself if it happens to you. I want to turn to um, your attack in Italy, um, of which I know this is a hard segue, but, um, you know, we've been talking for a really long time and I want to make sure that... Yeah, I feel bad. No. <laughs> Look at this time. No, I, I listen. I, and everyone who listens knows that these go on for as long as they need to go on. Um, yeah. uh, and I think we've been talking about some really great things, especially for people looking to get into the industry, you know, um, but it, your the um, the the attack that you had in Italy is also extremely important, and I want to give it some time. Um, you know, to start. I mean, can you can you just give a a, a quick, you know, the quick story of it, um, of what happened, and um, you know, and then we can go from there. Sure. Um- and for anyone listening, I have much more detail. I have a site called a fightbackwoman.com and I've done probably 200 posts, maybe 300 at this point. And a lot yeah. of them explain it in so much more detail if you're curious. Um, and we'll link to that. Yeah. And so um, the, 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 the treetops of it is I, the last night I was on vacation, I, in, in Italy, and I actually had a friend with me. I usually travel alone, but I had a friend with me. 
So when I travel alone, I usually go to bed before it gets dark. As it gets dark, I'm wrapping up dinner, um, <laughs> right? Which sucks when you're in Europe because they start eating dinner at 1030, right? So sure. it's one of those really tough situations. I, I used to hate having to go. And I did it just because I thought, well, I don't, I can't see. I'll probably get lost on the way back to the hotel. And, you know, I just would feel better. But so now I'm in Italy. I'm with a friend. It's my last night of vacation. I went looking for a chandelier. Um, from a house I had just closed on and we got talking with a local cafe owner, probably late afternoon. He introduced us to a local artist who has a studio nearby. We got talking about America and all the differences in Italy and the art scene. It's really interesting and went and saw the artist's studio and his work and then came back and kept talking. And then the artist asked me for, to go out, meet up for a drink later. And I actually declined. My friend and I were going to go have some ridiculous like pig out of Italian pot. Like food. we were like, <laughs> we are going to eat more pasta than we're going to have to roll onto the plane the next morning. Um, and I didn't want to like interrupt that at all. But I finally just said, you know, after thinking about it mid dinner, I said to my friend, you know, I never get to go see the nightlife. I never get to even have a drink with anyone interesting because I'm too scared. You know, and you're here and you've met him. You know where I'm going. And she said, you know, absolutely, Carrie, like live a little is what she said, just live a little. You always put these restrictions on yourself. And so I went back and, and said, I will meet you, you know, here in about an hour. I have to go drop off this chandelier I just bought, blah, blah, blah. So short, I wind up running into him right after dinner and we commenced our evening going to get a drink. Although I was sick, so I couldn't really drink. And uh, uh, about, I don't know, four or five hours later, I find myself climbing you know, down all these rooftops. Uh, his apartment is up on the sixth floor. I'd gone up there um, earlier in the night to see where he did his, I saw a studio and then we went up there to go see where he said he did his paintings, some of the paintings of like St. Peter's, um, mm -hmm. the dome. And he was right. You could see all of that from up there. And then we went about our night. And at the end of the night, I was like, all right, I've got 20 minutes. And he's like, why don't you come up here one last time? And then, you know, we'll, we'll end the evening. Absolutely. And you know, from that point on, I was under attack by him. Um, he knew very well I was not interested in sex. I had told him that at the start of the night. Um, I told him, you know, I'm not interested. I just find him an interesting guy and, and wanted to hear more about everything, the traveling to China to do these art shows in New York and all that. And, um, and uh, yeah, I, I crossed paths with a predator and I had to wind up in an awful physical battle with him and fend off a rape. Um, he did sexually assault me. He, he digitally assaulted me um, with his fingers and uh, bit my face and, you know, marked my body. And, and I had to get in a physical fight to get away from him. And in order to escape him, was I had to go over a balcony and climb down um, seven buildings, six stories uh, in the dead of night. And then I wound up calling the embassy and going to a hospital and dealing with the Roman police and filing a report. And then for a year and a half after I was in a court case, you know, pressing charges against them. So it was one of those weird things that like, I, I always think back and you can never get it back. But if I had not had my friend with me, right. I would have never even allowed myself to entertain the idea, mm -hmm. which is kind of sad because you travel to meet people <laughs> sure. and you know, but at the same time, I thought I'd done everything right. You know, I said, I said, you know, this is where we're going to go. My friend, here's the curfew. Like, 
my friend was with me when I set the curfew. Um, I laid out how, what time I'd go out with him till I told him I wasn't interested. You know, I thought I did all these things that I've been told that if you do that, then you're very clear because we've always made women seem like if it's about us not being clear enough. Right. Um, and so I did all the things to make things very clear. And then what I learned is that that's not how they work at all. Predators don't give a shit about you making things clear because they don't regard you at all. Right. And yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, I think this gets something you said really hit me, which was you felt that you needed to say in your explanation that you had told him you weren't interested in sex. Yeah. And, and how I always feel that need to tell people that because I want them to know that. Yeah. I want them to know because I don't think most people talk about, like, I don't think most people set that expectation on a, on a blind, like not a blind date. Cause I'd met him earlier. So I don't even know what you call it, but I'm so awkward <laughs> that I will be like, hi, we are not having sex. I will say that. <laughs> sure. And even with something as, as ridiculous, like most people would not say that. And they all tell me, I would never have said that. I just would have like, you know. Well, and it came up <laughs> in a, in a kind of funny way, right? Like, yeah. yeah. Yes. I, yes. I, I said no sex though. No, no. Like, because <laughs> he, he tried to kiss me. He like leaned in and kissed me while I was talking to him at this cafe. And I was so startled because again, you know, usually, in America, at least, or what I've learned is you, that first kiss may or may not come at the end of the date, right? Mm-hmm. It, I never in my experience been mid-conversation on a date and, like, been kissed without, like, <laughs> you know, the awkward, well, are you leaning in? Are you going to, like, that kind of thing. And right, right. <laughs> so, you know, so that's why I got awkward about it. I thought, oh, oh, I have to make this really clear. Um Again, but I can look back, but he was testing my boundaries. He was testing me and I was failing those tests because instead of slapping him or whatever, I just thought I got embarrassed mm-hmm. and started to kind of retreat into myself because I was like, I'm such a prude, right? Why am I so bothered that he just did that? Why are my cheeks on fire here in this place? If no one's looking at me, nobody gives a crap. Like nobody's even looking, you know, um, there was like a whole thing and all of that came out in that experience. All of my improper te- learnings about this stuff and my inadequacies and my self-esteem and all the things were wrapped up in all those, those hours that I was with him. Um, because I was with the wrong person. I was with a predator and, um, unaware. So while you were in his apartment, um, you, you felt it, a- at one point that he was trying to trap you in and yeah. Um, and you're, I was going to say, and your, your brain um, went into overdrive and your between your brain and your body. Um, you know, they, a lot of the things we talked about when you were younger, you know, the army crawling, the, um, and, um, and all of that really kind of saved you. Yeah. But also my sensitivity to other people, um, it helped and hurt me. And I'll explain. So when I realized that Mark had no intention of letting me leave, right? And again, I did not go up there to have sex or to even 
get naked in any way, shape or form. I had already been up there earlier. If we were going to kiss, I was fine with that. Like it wasn't a big deal. Right. I mean, I was 32. Right. How many of us have like smooched someone right. that we didn't feel like marrying? Um, but right. But regardless, yeah, even I, I, so I, um, well, cause you know, I, I, I do get that call. Well, why are we up? I'm like, I just never occurred to me that I don't get to call the shots and what's going on with my body. Like it just, when you're 32 and you've been alone with men plenty of times in your life, whether it's just a good guy friend, a buddy, whatever you just, I never learned that I should think that my words are not going to be respected. Um, sure. And so what a crappy time to learn that. Right. When I'm in, you know, halfway across the world, but. But also what a crappy thing for people, you know, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting the story, but okay. what a crappy thing for people to ask you because. Yeah, but every, but we're taught that we are taught to look at what the person did wrong, quote, quote, unquote, sure. wrong, because we're trying to find a way to assure ourselves that we would never be in that. That would never happen to us. Hmm. It's a distancing strategy. It's a self-preservation thing predicated on the, the great paralyzing fear that we can't prevent our own violation. And so what we do, the way the brain works on that is it looks at every situation and it looks for the one or two things that we don't think we'd ever do. And that to assure ourselves that our outcome that would never happen to us. And so I always recognize that. I don't, I don't get mad at people unless they keep harping on it mm -hmm. because, you know, when someone says that they're showing you their ignorance and lack of education. Okay. So it doesn't threaten me, but, it, but if they keep at it, you know, then it gets insulting because I know what I know. Um, but you know, with Marco, so that night I just started to get uncomfortable. He was, he was definitely drunk. I realized finally I wasn't at all. I had not even had a drink for two or three hours. And, and at that, like not, I mean, I was, I was with him maybe six, four, maybe five hours, but I, I started before the dinner, right. With mm -hmm. Interacting with him. So I'd had two and a half glasses from maybe four in the afternoon till two in the morning. Right. That's like nothing <clears throat> with all the pasta. But um, so we're in two different planes. And I realized he is not talking to me. We're not out there on the balcony talking about, oh, I'm going, you know, oh, what a great night, blah, blah, blah. He's in the, his apartment trying to light candles. I hear glass break. He knocked over some dishes. Like he was a hot mess. And I just thought, okay, I need to go now. Like we're not even talking. This is boring. And when I tried to leave is when he realized that I wasn't there for, you know, not realized his plan was going awry, whatever thought, whatever he thought was going to happen. And so he physically attacked me and he, he tried to rape me standing up. Um, I remember he, so he had been biting my face and scratching and he was holding me up against him and he was trying to undo his pants. And it was so terrifying. And I ran to the door. I grabbed my purse and a book of artwork that he had given me when I was at his studio earlier in the night. And I ran to the door and the door was locked and it was a flat, a flat lock. Like you needed a key to lock it on the inside. What? And I did. I, yeah. I didn't have the key. There was no way I could get out. Mm -hmm. There was nothing like um, a latch or anything. Right. And I heard from behind, he said to me in almost perfect English, which he had never used the whole time. He said to me, you're not going anywhere. You're not going anywhere tonight. And so I remember the chill that just, surprised at his English, the finality mm. of how he had said it to me and the realization I was in genuine, genuine life or death trouble. And I turned around and he had this big silver ring with all these keys on it and he threw it at the bed. 
to let me know that the door key was on there. And if I wanted to try to find it, I was going to have to go to the bed, which to go to the bed, he was going to try to rape me on the bed. Right. Like, it was very obvious. I mean, in all in that one thing, I knew exactly what he was trying to do and what he was saying to me. And when that started to set in, um, he turns his back on me and walks away. And I see this bottle of rum on the table that he just bought at the bar that we had been at. And I remember my left hand flinching, like flickering toward it, because I thought I could get the shot off. I could get that. I could crash that in his head and probably kill him. I mean, it's a bottle of rum. It's a heavy glass. And I wail him on the back of the head. He's probably going to die. And then I thought, I'll never get out of Italy if I do that. And Mm. my thoughts were going so fast. But this is what I'm doing. I'm basically trying to calculate what's the next step and, and how to get out of it. And in that one moment, I thought, I can't kill somebody. He hasn't, it hasn't gotten so bad yet. And then later on, while I'm fighting for my life, I'm like, why did I not kill this? <laughs> like, what? You know, but, but if I had hit him then, someone would have said, what, you know what I mean? Right. Like the police would have been like, you murdered someone because he bit you. Like what, you know, I, I never would have gotten out of Rome. They would have put me away. I mean, we, yeah. I mean, and this was, yeah. Maybe, Amanda Knox was going on. Yeah. It would have put me away. I knew that. Mm-hmm. I knew I would never make it out of Rome if I hit him with that bottle. And that thought came and went. I'm talking, these were like milliseconds. Yeah. I see the bottle. I think I'm going to grab it. My left hand starts going toward it. My brain goes, no, Carrie, you'll never get out of Italy. Boom. I never grabbed the bottle. And then Marco turns around and starts pretending he's going to call the police. He's holding his phone and he's going, polizia, polizia. He's like mocking me because he knew that's what I would want someone to do. And now I realize he is a full on psychopath. Yeah. I mean, he's not. Yeah. And I started to shut down my body. I went to move. And then I remember this feeling of my stomach dropping like butterflies, like severe butterflies. And then I felt gas, like I felt gas Mm -hmm. and I felt like I was going to relieve myself of everything. Um, and I was fighting that off, like, clenching, like, Oh God, you know, and, and then realized I can't move my legs. I couldn't move at all. And my brain, I'm saying, what the hell? Oh, my God, Carrie. Oh, my God. Move, 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 move. What is, what are you doing? And not realizing I had tonic immobility. And that is what happens to trauma victims. Tonic immobility. It's almost like, it's almost like um, Lou Gehrig's disease where your brain is working fine, but your body isn't. Mm-hmm. You're encased in your own body. Your thoughts are fine. It's the rest of you can't move. And that happened to me. And, and I, somehow I busted out of it. Um, and to engage him physically to, to, to get out on the balcony, to get out of an enclosed space and then to ultimately get off, get off the patio and the balcony and, and start running across the rooftops. But I, I, I can't tell anyone that that's because I'm a badass. It's just the way my body works. Mm-hmm. My brain apparently decided it was okay to get out of that situation and that it was a better idea to, to fight than not. Um, I can't take credit for that. Right. But I can tell other people about it so that they understand this is the kind of stuff that's going to happen to you. It's not like it's so easy to fight off someone that wants to rape you. It's impossible. It's very hard. And I have a lot of body confidence. And so I don't know how many people would say, okay, you know what? Those rooftops, six stories high, those are a better option. I have more confidence I'm going to do well there than stay here. I saw some of the pictures I was going through um, your your blog and I started at the beginning Good. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, 
oh my gosh, the athleticism it took. Right. And, and I know we, I know you don't want to necessarily say, you know, it's, you know, because I'm an athlete, but I mean, I know adrenaline does a lot of crazy things for people. I'm not sure that I would have landed some of those jumps. You know, you say that. Right. I mean, <laughs> again, it's very understandable, yeah. but yeah. I tell you, you feel like you have the strength of 10 men. Yeah. Like, did I grew up not just on Wonder Woman, but the bionic, um, there's like the bionic woman. Mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> uh, it was like Lindsay Wagner. And she used to jump in the opening credits. There was this like ridiculous sound, like, like they would, you know, slow-mo. The effects weren't so great in the 80s for television, but mm-hmm. her big power was that she could jump and leap like 30, 40 feet. Right. And I kind of remember that feeling of like, I felt like I could do anything. I felt, and I didn't feel pain. Mm-hmm. When your adrenaline is at mortal danger levels, everyone, you can't feel pain. I could hear him hitting me or me hitting him. I could hear the popping and I felt nothing. And so when I was landing, I would hear my feet, like my boots slam into the concrete, but I didn't feel pain. So the problem with that is, one, it's excellent and it keeps you going, right, to get away. Mm -hmm but it masks the damage right? until the next morning where I could hardly move. I felt like every aspect of me was broken. My, my fingertips felt like they were broken. Everything. I, I have never been in more pain in my life than I was. I wanted to be unconscious. It hurt so bad. Yeah. You engaged in hand-to-hand combat with him at one point. Yeah. Yes. Um, Many points. Yeah. Many points. Yes. Um, how, how did you know what to do? Um, had you gone through self-defense training before or was it just, yeah. And I talk about this a lot. So a few things, when you take self-defense, it's not so much that you walk out going, yes, I am going to be able to take out the kneecap and the eyeballs that anyone attacked. Right. I mean, it's like, it's kind of ridiculous. Like, that's not the point. The point is getting yourself familiar with the thinking of what would I do if. And so I took that class my senior year at college. And I, there's all sorts of things. Like my professor said, if, if you want to attract attention, someone's attacking you or locked you in, try to break the window. Shattering glass is what gets people to know something is wrong because it's not a natural sound. Mm-hmm. Nothing good happens when glass is shattering. There's never a good reason for why it's doing that, especially at two in the morning. Right. And unless you're at a, unless you're at a Jewish wedding, I just, well, that's true, but a window, right, right. Right. Off a building. And, and so, you know, there's nothing good going on that made Mm -hmm. that happen. And people remember the sound. So they're good for like police reports to say, yeah, I heard windows shatter. My husband, I woke up, you know? Um, so I would remember these little snippets and I would always think to myself, oh, you know, I'd see something in the news. Someone said was abducted into a van, blah, blah, blah. And I, and I remember my professor, there was a teacher saying, the time to fight is before you are enclosed. The time to fight for your life, crazy as you can be, is before you are locked into a space. A lot of people think, okay, I'll let them get me into the car and then I'll find a way out of this. Mm-mm. And that's the, you give up the minute you surrender that is your chance of survival diminishes greatly. 
And so I would remember these things by, by looking at cases in the news and think what I would do different, try to do different, or what maybe they did right. And so when I was with Marco fighting, I remember thinking what I was going to throw through his window, his little TV. I was like, that will break the glass, you know, if he, mm-hmm. if he successfully locks me in here. Um, I knew to shatter and break things because it was leaving evidence of a struggle. Um, I also knew that when I hit him, I should not put my thumb under my fist so that I don't crush my own thumb. <laughs> it was just little, you know, little, yeah. little things like that, that, but I also never got close to him in self-defense class. They'll teach you, you get in close to take out the kneecaps, to take out the eyes, but he was so much bigger than me. I thought he'll choke me. He will, he'll strangle me and I won't mm-hmm. be able to fend him off because he had already thrown me in the air a few times. And it was with such command and force that I realized it was just, it was not safe to get within three feet of him. Um, so everything was a, 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 a either charging or a, a, a fist throw, but it was never close enough that he could get my neck. Mm-hmm. And these are just the things that come to your brain while you're fighting. But I also realized I needed to get out of his apartment. So that was part of the never get enclosed thing I learned in self-defense when he was trying to close his sliding glass door and lock me in his little apartment. I knew I had to get out because nothing good was going to happen in an enclosed space with him. And I did that and I got out onto the patio. And then the next thing was realizing I was too fatigued to keep going and to come up with an alternative strategy. And the strategy was to go over the railing. In one of your blog posts, you mentioned that, and you've referenced it a little bit throughout our conversation, um, you know, you grew up uh, in a household that wasn't very close to the religion aspect, right? You, you, you went to church a little bit, but um, at one right. point, you talk about how you kind of felt God or it, it, maybe not in, in such language, but that you could feel s- something helping you. Right. Um, oh yeah. No, I actually am very clear. I feel like maybe not. I mean, I, I wrote those blog posts again. Remember I wrote those still from the perspective of a victim, but I'm not someone who understood sexual violence. Mm-hmm. When I wrote those, I had not yet been trained. I, Sometimes I look back and can't believe some of the things I wrote, you know, thinking I knew what I was talking about. Um, but I will never change those because that's me being honest, yeah. you know, of who I was at that time. Um, there were three moments of what I call divine intervention that was direct. And I, you know, nobody can tell me otherwise. Uh, I, I had three moments of asking God for help. Um, one was when I was on the roof the third or fourth roof over from Marco's apartment. And I had been slipping backwards because it was a terracotta roof and it was very moldy. Mm-hmm. And I almost fell right off into the street, like six stories on my back. And, um, I, I asked God for help. I whacked myself in the face to try to calm myself down. And cause things were moving so fast and I was starting to make bad decisions. And I was confused about where to go and how to get out of where I was on these rooftops. And, and I slapped myself and I asked God for help. I said, oh my God, please help me, God, please help me. I don't know what to do. And, and then I just remember a calmness coming over me and, and it was very, all of a sudden I was very matter of fact. 
about where I was stepping and jumping. And it seemed very clear to me what was the right place and what was the wrong place. And ultimately I landed after all of that climbing and jumping that suddenly seemed very logical to me. Mm -hmm. I landed on the balcony of the only Americans in the building. Wow. And when I heard their voice come through the other side, when I knocked and said, I'm Harry Potts, I'm an American. I think a man's trying to kill me. He tried to rape me and I just want to get home to my um, hotel. When the voice came back with American voice, I was so surprised. And they wound up being the witnesses that saved me in my case because they were the ones that said, yes, this woman did land on our belt, you know, because the cops had a hard time understanding how I did that. Right. Um, but, uh, and then when, um, when I went to the hospital for my injuries at about four in the morning, uh, my friend and I were sitting there not understanding what the document said I was trying to fill out. The doctors didn't speak English. It was very hard. I said to her, I, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know if I'm signing my life away and my finances. I don't understand the insurance structure here. And um, this man came out of the elevator, this big guy in like a fedora and a trench coat. And it's four in the morning. And he just comes over to us and says, oh, I heard you come in. And we're like, you just came out of a, you know, you just came out of a um, elevator. How the hell, which means you're on a different floor. Like, how did you know <laughs> that we came in? <laughs> and we were just staring. And he said, oh, I used to be a doctor in Corpus Christi. You know, what is, why are you here? And, and I said, are you a doctor at the hospital? He said, no, I'm visiting a friend. And I said, well, I was attacked and I, I'm scared. I don't know how to read. And he said, oh, no, no, you, you know, this is how insurance works in Italy. And I'll read your chart and I'll tell the doctor what you want and blah, blah, blah. And he just sat with us. Oh my God. For an hour and a half. And any, and he, he read my chart to me. He read the x-ray results. He told me how to get my medicine. And then when it was over, he said, okay, I go see my friend now. <laughs> and so like my friend, and I look at each other, going, what is going on? Like, this is insane. And he goes back in the elevator and goes up. We see the elevator close and, and we go back out to our taxi, which had just stayed there at this hospital. Cause there's nothing else going on at four in the morning. And as we go back out of the hospitals, you know, out of the exit. And we look across the street, hanging from this lamppost, like leaning with one arm, leaning back is that guy. <laughs> and he's waving at us. He's waving at the girl and I in, in the taxi, looking directly at us. But we had just seen him go up the elevator. It, what? Yeah. So, you know, I knew what that was. Yeah. I looked at my friend, I put my hand on her shoulder because she went ramrod, like silent and just stiff. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what that is, right? And she said nothing. And I said, you know what that is? And I, what I meant by that is that's an angel like that. You know what just happened, right? Like this whole, that, that was an angel like that whole situation. And I'm, again, I'm not Catholic, I'm Lutheran. So we don't have like, Right. The saints and the whatever, but you're by the Vatican. Everything feels very holy. Like the fact that this guy materialized right after I said, I need help. I don't understand these things. I'm so scared. He came out of nowhere, filled my needs, right? Took care of all of my needs and fears and then left. And then he like transformed, like through a concrete wall of a hospital and beat us out to a street, cross the street, hanging from a lamppost, looking. It was, the whole thing was so insane. And after that, the person who was with me never spoke really. 
Like mm. the rest of the trip, she was so freaked out. She didn't understand what was going on and she felt scared yeah. and freaked out. And so I lost her after that. But I felt like I knew what that was and it kept me going. And later that night when I was taken back to the street that I escaped from, where I'd come out of one of the apartment buildings and gone running for my life, I was with these plainclothes officers and it's seven at night. I have not slept ever <laughs> since the previous day and a half. I have not had any ice for any of my injuries and I'm in the street and it's raining and these cops are fighting with me about what they believe I did or didn't do. And I realized if they don't believe I escaped over the balcony, then they don't believe me. And this whole 12 or 14 hours of questioning has been for nothing. They think I'm a joke. And I started to cry and I looked at the sky and I asked God for help because I was so, I was so exhausted and realized this, everything was hinging on this. And I couldn't tell them which building I came out of. I couldn't remember. I never looked, turned around to look back at like the number on the door mm -hmm. or which door it was. And as I was talking to this guy, this woman came up out of the one end of the street. She was pushing a, well, she, it was an old man behind her pushing a baby carriage. And she said to me, she said, are you an American? And I said, yeah, I, and she said, you, you speak English? I said, yeah, I don't have time right now if you want like a, rec a restaurant recommendation. <laughs> I was such a bitch. I was like, I got nothing for you right now, lady. Like, if you think we're going to kumbaya about being Americans right now, I, and she put her hand up and just said, no, no, no. I think you're the woman my husband let in off the balcony this morning. Mm -hmm. And I turned to her and I, I, my, my, my mouth was open and I had never seen her in my life and she'd never seen me. And I said, yeah, she said, are you Carrie? I said, yes. She said, God is watching you, Carrie. And she said, angels are watching you. And her name was Angela. Oh my gosh. She said, I'm Angela. And I went weak in the back of my knees. I felt pinpricks on my face and I threw myself in her arms and collapsed and started bawling. And the man that pushed up behind her with the case, with the kid and the, the stroller, he was one of the men that helped me through the apartment. He was an older man. It was her father. He had given me tissues for my bloody face as I was helped out the door of this apartment I escaped through. And he said, I have been so worried about you. Aww. And he started crying. And I, you don't understand, this woman had hidden the bathroom with that baby because they thought I was some crazy lady that fell off the balcony above them. Because mm -hmm. the guy above them was like a partier. They thought I was like a drug addict or a prostitute. And so she hid in the interior bathroom and I never saw her. So I went through this apartment, the, the husband and the older man let me out. And she just said, she came back from dinner and she's like, I just knew that's who it was. I saw your silhouette at the end of the street with these four people. And our, the offices were plain clothes. They weren't in cop, cop outfits. And she just said, she knew it was me. And she came up and when she said that, and those words came out of her mouth, I will never forget that. And so she still, to this day, that couple, they, Angela and her husband, they, they do testimony at their church. Like they're super Catholic, um, down in Miami. And they always talk about how that was the strangest night of their lives. How everything about it made them feel very close to God. And for me, it was the third time in 24 hours that when I asked for help, I got it. Yeah. It, and I will never know otherwise. No one will tell me, no one can explain it away. And I don't, again, nobody gets to do that. I know exactly what happened. I know exactly what happened. It was in divine. It was as it was supposed to be. And I don't, 
need another explanation. I know why. I know why I do the work I do now. I was shown all these things that I would understand what victims go through and, and then be able to spread the word about what happens to people when this happens. Um, are you still in contact with that couple? I haven't heard from them in a few years. Like every year we check in, but I plan to reach out to them. Um, I kind of just wanted to let them have their lives because they came and did my show with me, my um, travel channel show. And then also I think Discovery ID, they sat for interviews. Mm-hmm. You could see them if you go look up the Discovery ID episode. Um, so, you know, everyone just wanted to get back to their lives after a while. But right. I'm going to go back to Italy next year for my 10-year anniversary of the assault. I'm going to try to interview everybody that helped me that night. And I'm definitely going to make sure I reach out to them. That's going to be, that'll be incredible. Um, yeah. Had they arrested Marco at this point when you were walking down there? Yeah, he was already in police questioning. He'd already been in custody. They brought him into the police station at around two o'clock. I was sitting outside my interview room waiting for the next round of interviews. And I saw this big commotion at the end of the hallway, maybe 30 or 40 feet. And all these policemen shoulder to shoulder, like walking like little baby steps, mm-hmm. like a wall. And I realized it's because Marco was there and they didn't want me to see him. Yeah. But I was within 30 feet of him. And I knew who it was. I was very upset. Like I knew something was not right. And then I figured out that's who it was. And I thought, oh, what I should have just done is run down the hall, leap over them and punch him in the face. Like that's what I thought I should have done. I was so afraid. I probably just would have grown up. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. But think of how unusual that is, right? Yeah. How often are you within 30 feet of the guy that just tried to kill you? In America, I don't know that we have that kind of procedure, but in Italy, that's how they do it. So. There were so many little details and things about what happened immediately, like once you got back to the hotel and, and, and told your friend and, and you all start this process of, you know, okay, what do we do next? Who do we talk to? Who do we report to? Yep. How does it work? Um, there are so many of those details that I don't necessarily, um, we, we could talk for a week straight about Yeah, we could. And and so, (laughs) no, don't feel bad. Please don't. Um, what I, what I will suggest people do is, um, you know, really go to, to Carrie's website and, and read these things, especially if you're, you know, I, I hate to say if you're a woman, but because, but we all know that the majority of assaults are attacks on women. And, um, and, and if you're planning on traveling with a friend or especially alone, you know, read some of the things that Carrie did and, and then her takeaways because she, she has gone through and added notes, um, and, and she calls them out or she bolds things that she thinks, you know, in hindsight were really, really helpful. And, just so that you have an idea if you, God forbid, happen to be in this type of situation. Um, but I do want to say, you know, and, and give you space to talk about, you know, how um, ESPN was, yeah. you know, how helpful they were um, with you while you were still in Italy. Yeah. I mean, so the first person I called was not my family or anything. When I was back in the hotel, I called, my insurance company um, <laughs> because I was trying to figure out if my insurance worked. Yeah. And, 
for the hospital. I, I never got an answer on that because the minute I said I was sexually assaulted, I started, they started me with a, a questionnaire that just was never ending. Mm-hmm. And I hung up the phone because I felt like I was up against the clock and that they were taking too much time. Um, but the good thing about it is it started a record of things and it showed my frame of mind that from the minute I got back to the hotel, I believed I was sexually assaulted. I called and told them, you know what I mean? And these right. are, that's how you start leaving your paper trail for investigation. Um, I called my sister, her husband at the time helped connect me to the embassy, you know, all these things. And, um, but when I got to the embassy in the morning, that when it finally opened, like not just talk to the person on duty on the phone, but when I actually got to the embassy, when it opened at 8 a.m., they let me use the phone to call my sister and give her an update. And I told her, you need to call my boss, Rob, and tell him what's going on, that I'm not going to be back at work tomorrow. I'm missing my flight today. I may not come back for a while. And the problem is you only get that one or two phone calls or one call and there's no way to get a hold of me. And so my sister called my boss to tell him and then she couldn't get a hold of me and she kept calling the embassy and they really were not very helpful to her. And so she started panic and she called my boss back and asked for help. And ESPN, to its credit, all the people that were executives decided they were going to start to try to track me down and use the resources of our company and that of Walt Disney Company, our relationships with the embassies in Italy, um, and you know, figure out how to get someone to me to come find me. And they did. Someone came and found me end of that horrible day, about 11 o'clock at night after I'd been questioning all day and, and helped secure a flight for me to come home and security to help me feel safe. And they put me in therapy and, gave, you know, I, the thing is I was believed from the minute I told everybody, mm-hmm. I told my sister, she didn't question me. I told my brother-in-law, he didn't question me. Uh, my boss finds out he's not questioning me. They're like, Oh, Carrie Potts. Absolutely. We'll go through a brick wall for her. Like that's our girl. And most victims never get that. Right. Again, totally unusual. But the thing is, because I was so, A, I knew I did nothing wrong. And B, they never made me feel that way. I started from a, the best place possible that you could start from to try to go after or file charges or process what just happened. And their support throughout the whole time, like I'm launching 30 for 30 and then on my lunch break, running to the embassy to get stamps on my documents that I can't even read because they're in Italian and then send them back to my attorneys in Milan. Right. The company was so supportive, whatever I needed. And I never abused it, by the way. I never took it for, in fact, I worked harder to make sure that they knew I was never going to use that or abuse what they were doing for me or let the time they were letting me take to go do these things. Um, so they got the best, the very best of me and they gave me their very best. And one of the great things is they didn't try and silence you either. Um, no. You know, the fact that you work for who you work for, it could have been a situation where they said, eh, you know, Carrie, this blog of yours and, and they didn't. And I think that's great. Um, because I think that, you know, obviously allowed you to record what you felt at the time you needed to record. And to this day to, to talk about, um, the issues, um, surrounding sexual assault, um, you know, violence against women, um, and, and the differences when you're, a foreign national in another country. Yeah. Um, 
There was. Oh, oh, no, you please go ahead. I was going to say, it's just a credit to the people at our company and the culture, um, regardless of whoever wants to knock us for whatever. You know, I I don't know too many companies that would do what they did. And I know that because every friend I have and family member says my company would never, like, they'll talk about their companies, like, my company would never do that for me if it wasn't a business trip. And it wasn't. I was there on personal vacation. And so everything about it, of course, they were going to support me in my blog. I was always respectful. I didn't, you know, my blog was about my experience. It wasn't an exegesis on the company. Um, And to their credit, how does it hurt them to have a female executive, you know, use her platform to educate others and to also pound home the idea that ESPN is a special place and that they did the right thing. And look, look what happens when you do the right thing. You retain top talent. You know, mm-hmm. you gain the loyalty of that person. And then, oh, by the way, you're part of the journey for when she finally starts taking her learnings to the public. You're part of that. And that's never a bad thing for a company. Right. And I mean, uh, you know, another testament to them. Most recently, um, you you did a training with the entire company on the language of violence and, um, and how... Uh, we should be careful with the words and order of the words that we're using when we do talk about um, sexual assault and, and violence generally. Well, I mean, the work that I've done now as a victim's advocate for years in the training, um, the, the things that interest me the most go back to, like I told you, I love poetry and I love words and, um, and I work in media and sports where sexual violence interpersonal violence intersects with us on on an almost daily basis, I realized the opportunity to educate our people how to be better about the words we're using right now to describe these crimes and and the people who are harmed by them, and that we could do it better and in a way that shapes how others come to understand this so that they don't wind up learning the hard lessons I learned, you know, um, that they that we're part of the solution, that we're no longer the problem. And to me, the problem is when we use words and language that don't ever mention the perpetrator or that place blame on the victim, it has a chilling effect and it perpetuates the cycle of no one coming forward. And when you don't come forward, they, they're not able to identify for us as society, the people who are harming others. And then we can hold them accountable and remove them from society, which you have to do with the sexual predators. You have to remove them from the general population because they're so repetitive in what they do. Mm-hmm. They have a preferred method and they will do it over and over and over because it elicits the response that they want. And we see that with Harvey Weinstein. I mean, I'm not surprised. I'm yeah. never surprised by the number. Everybody else is because we keep every the way it's described, the way the words journalists use. We always make it seem like it was a miscommunication and it was a one-off. It was an oops, an accident, and it was like an unusual thing. And what all the data shows us and what these cases show and Darren Sharper and Bill Cosby and Sandusky is that Mm -hmm. they, they will do this dozens and dozens and dozens of times throughout their life if they are not impeded you know, in, in enacting, you know, their, their form of terror on someone. Um, and so how do you change that? You change by how people learn or understand how these things happen and work. 
do that, you propel us forward. And so that's the work I'm doing. And my bosses know I've done the groundwork to be credible. They've let me take time to adjust my schedule when I've had to in order to, to get my training and my certification. And now I'm helping us be up, hopefully, with the permission of all the right people and the executives, helping us be a better, better presence in the media space when it comes to deviant, you know, domestic violence and sexual assault. Right. Can you give some examples of the language that is used and and how tweaking it, it changes the perception? Absolutely. This is some groundbreaking work by Claudia Bailiff. And she was at Legal Momentum, but um, she was one of the people on the prosecutorial team for Kobe Bryant. She's one of the just amazing women who's really focused in on this stuff. But um, it's everything from just, I mean, even using the term date rape, um, as if it's like rape light, um, like right. not real rape, um, because we, when we say date rape, people make it seem like there's some kind of sexual exchange that got out of hand. Um, all date rape means is it's someone you know and went out with, like you trusted in some kind of setting, right? It's someone you might've gone on a date with. Um, it doesn't mean it's any less awful that you knew the person beforehand. Um, in fact, most rapes happen that way. It's someone that I was just most rapes <laughs> are quote date rape. And that's, what's ridiculous about it. So now we use the, the word stranger rape and non-stranger. And to me that neutralizes it because date, it just seems like it's, not as bad. And, and people, I would say to people, like, so you think, they'll say, Carrie, is it worse that you knew the guy or you didn't? I'm like, that's ridiculous. That's like asking me if I prefer to be drowned or set on fire. Um, they're both awful. And if you don't know someone and you're raped, you know, someone attacks you when you're outside, a man attacks you, a man rapes you, that attacks your sense of safety of just walking out your door. If it's someone you trust and you let in your space, it attacks your sense of trust. Right. They are no, and especially if it's someone you know, like a friend for a really long time or a coworker. But basically, when you tell someone, oh, be careful, be careful, you're like basically telling them not to trust. You're telling a person, don't trust anyone or anything at any time. Well, who the heck can walk around like that? Right. Um, and so, words like that or domestic dispute, what a ridiculous <laughs> pairing of words. Domestic, when people say, oh, it was a domestic situation, like, Oh, because it wasn't a stranger, it's worse that you were beaten by someone you know? Like, how, that, what? Um, what's worse? Someone you care and love is harming you? Or calling it a dispute. Like, yes. a dispute dis- is you and I don't agree and we get in a heated argument over what college football team is the best. That's a dispute. Well, and dispute also denotes verbal right. an argument, not physical. It also makes it seem participatory by both sides mm-hmm. and that there is also blame on both sides and the domestic the way domestic violence works is someone has the power and the control and someone is the recipient of the perversion of that power and control and so even if you are in an argument with a person beating you quote argument there's nothing fair there's no blame there for the person being controlled beaten berated belittled but our words seem to make it seem a not that bad and like both parties participated and had a hand in it 
and it's just not the way it is. The research shows us that's not the way it is. And so we've already found a way as society to make personal, interpersonal violence when you are harmed by someone you love or a family member, that it's not as bad as if it was a stranger. And if you're raped by someone you know or you have gone on a date with or you have a personal relationship with, it's not as bad as if it was a stranger. And then we start equivocating that one rape is not so bad, then it's, then we shouldn't feel as bad toward the perpetrator. <laughs> it, it has a complete, it's just a, a downward spiral from right. there. Um, it's everything from saying um, a woman was raped last night instead of a man raped a woman last night. Um, it, there's no actor in that sentence. And, or 10 women are raped every day. How about men rape 10 women per day? Like, you know, like right. it, it, the way we talk about it is we keep focusing just on the victim. We focus on them in the language and then we hyper focus on them when we come to understand a crime took place to see what they did wrong or what, what errors they made. And so in all facets, we are focusing inordinately on the victim instead of the perpetrator. And you look at Harvey Weinstein, right? And look what he was able to get away with. No one focused on him. They live, they hide in plain sight. And they do it with our permission. Mm-hmm. Lupita Nyong'o's um, account is, uh, you know, I read it the other day and it entails so many of these little things, right? The, you know, um, well, maybe, maybe I'm just being too stiff or maybe I let him believe and, and the way people spoke to her about it. Um, and, and you see these accounts over and over again. Um, people are obviously speaking out a little bit more now, given, um, the press related to this and, and the high profile people who have come forward It has allowed people to feel more comfortable talking about it. But again, it's. Lupita Nyong'o comes out against Harvey Weinstein, not Harvey Weinstein, you know, sexually harassed Lupita Nyong'o. And that's what I'm trying to get Mm -hmm. at in the journalism classes. I'm speaking at Syracuse on Monday, and I'm going to present to them what I presented at ESPN in front of, oh gosh, almost 900 people or 800 people (laughs) at ESPN. Um, If we can get this into the, the newsrooms and into the schools, we can change overnight how people start to absorb and, and understand these things. Again, people who are assaulted don't talk about it. So we only learn about these crimes by what we read and what we see it depicted on on TV, right? And as long as it's improperly presented, when it's presented not neutral and in a way that is disproportionately um, negative to the victim, uh, we will see the Donna Karens of the world mm-hmm. who believe themselves to be champions of women and have been in everything, all facets of her business, right? And yet the words that came out of her mouth when she was interviewed are the exact mirror of what she's been reading her whole life. I, I can be mad at Donna Karen because it just irritates me, right. right? But on the other level, she is millions of people, women and men who open their mouths and unless they spent time like I have unlearning everything, they are, they are showing exactly where we're at as a society. 
that we can dress things up. We can be a, um, God, there was a congresswoman, a Democratic congresswoman. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we can be a Congress member, a female leader in the Democratic Party, right? Um, and still talk about if women would just dress more. I mean, it's just, and, and she thinks she's being helpful. Right. She doesn't understand the flag of ignorance that she's waving. She's at least identifying herself to us. Right. That she should not be entrusted, that she needs training. Right. So there's a good element to it. When these folks open their mouths, you go, oh, well, she needs, she, she's an opportunity. She, Donna Karen's an opportunity. She's got so much going on in the world of women. If you can get Donna Karen to understand her ignorance and learn, you know, you can change the tide. But on the one hand, it's infuriating. On the other hand, I understand why they're at where they're at, because that's where everyone's at. Unless you really care about this stuff on a personal level. And most people don't want to swim in this in the, in the cesspool of sexual violence sure. and no men that I know, unless you have a vested interest, you're not going to know it. And you're going to be part of helping Harvey Weinstein hide. And you're going to think you're out there marching in a women's march and all these things. And then what's going to come out of your mouth is everything that you've read, just like everybody else. And you're going to help Harvey Weinstein hide. And that's the horror. And that's the reality of it. Yeah. A lot of your, um, I love the training that you've gone through is as a result of how much volunteering you've done um, as a victim's advocate and crisis counselor. Um, currently, you do that at Gwinnett Sexual Assault Center and Children's Advocacy Center. It is, it's one of those things about you and your story that stands out to me um, and is proof that you're on a particular path for a reason because so many people after they've been assaulted are unable to to face it on a constant basis like you do yeah and you know again each his own if you don't do work ever on this if you never it it, it does it's not a reflection of any if that's how you choose to handle it right um, I just felt right. like I know I'm a strong person. I know that I do things other people don't. Um, I'm a very protective person because of my size. I was always the one protecting kids. And I had that expectation mm -hmm. from my parents that I would, anyone getting bullied, that I would step in and I would do that all the time. Um, and I just feel like I am, I'm okay with doing this and that someone needs to. And, um, and I'm okay with it. I mean, it's not that it's not hard, but I have to tell you when you the first time I spoke at the Clinton school and people started telling me and disclosing to me about their assaults, I realized every time I talk about what happened to me, that was going to start happening and that I should probably mm -hmm. get trained to be responsible. And it is such a gift, the feeling that people trust me enough to tell me the worst thing that's ever happened. They haven't even told their family. I mean, I just spoke at the Hawks last week and some of them, the members there came up to me and and, and, and one woman said, you know, I realize I'm still not healed. I've never addressed this. I'm going to start doing it. Like, when you have enough of those incidents, you're, you're, it keeps you going. You're like, there's no way I'm not doing this work. There's no way. Right. I just made that person the first time ever address this. Then I would never stop. You know, I would never stop. I want to reach as many people as possible. I want, them, I want to normalize it for them. And I'm not here there to be there. This is not like a ego thing. It's just, I, I have, I'll gladly 
tell you, spend time with you, tell you about me, answer any question if it's going to help you. It's cost me nothing. And the reward is so amazing right. of what it's going to do for people in our society. Right. It's almost it, it's what keeps me going. What do you tell people who haven't been through um, an assault um, and maybe even people who have um, who find out that somebody else has um, a friend? colleague, uh, family member confides in them. Um, like how do pe- how is, what's the appropriate way to respond? Um, the, po- the appropriate way is to always say, first of all, thank you for sharing that. I believe you. That is always the appropriate way. Convey to them on no uncertain terms that you believe what they are telling you. At no point do you ask any kind of question about what they did to bring it about themselves. It, people think they're like, suddenly like people want to become investigators. Like it's, it's not the time. It's not the time to try to like, literally someone trusts you. It is such a gift. It is so rare. Mm-hmm. And if you don't handle it right, they'll never tell anyone again. And then they won't, they will go without getting the support they need. And then they will not, be way less like they'll be way less likely to press charges and help us get these these folks you know out of the public sector um so the number one thing is to just say thank you that must be very hard i believe you what can i do to help you know what what can i do to help you and they might say just listen or or they might say i don't know and you can say well i'd love to work through some options with you you know, and yeah, and then go look up places and try to find someone to connect them with. Offer to go with them. I'm telling you, if someone tells you and you're their person to hear that news, you are, that is a gift being handed to you. And there is a responsibility that comes with it. Mm-hmm. You don't have to solve the problem. But at the baseline, if you just tell them, I'm so sorry, and I believe you, like, that's a home run. And it's easy. It's easy. And here's the thing. You don't have to end at believing them. I always tell people, start that way. You don't always have to end that way. Because people say, well, I don't want to give my support if I don't. Okay. No one's saying you have to wind up there. Right. But my God, as an act of humanity, start there. Yeah. Um, What are some resources that I can link to or that you can, um, and that you can speak to just real quick here for people who would like to get some more information or if, you know, God forbid they are one of those people that um, either uh, is a victim or um, is actively helping somebody who is a victim. Sure. Um, and Violence Against Women International, it's evawi, E-V-A-W-I, um, dot org. So many great resources, trainings, information, that kind of thing. They also have a program called Start by Believing. And that's just the concept I just explained. Yep. All the research shows you believe someone and provide support the first time they disclose. They will be well on their way to healthy um, development, uh, you know, in dealing with what happened and more likely to report. These are all good things. Um, I recommend uh, Pathways to Safety International, which as you mentioned, it's, it's formerly Sasha. They've just rebranded, but basically um, to help victims of overseas sexual violence. It's the only one of its kind in the whole country. Um, and they have people on the ground 
in all these different countries that will go to you if you're assaulted, that are American, that will go to you and help you. And they will provide uh, their hotline and they will provide uh, information for you from legal to medical advice to how to get a rape kit done, all those types of things. I mean, I wish I had that. And and that's the that's the group I'm now involved with. Um, Those are a few things. And always know your rape crisis center in your community. I mean, if anything you do, you do none of those other things. Just find out where they are and look at their site. They're going to be the ones to go to, to ask questions, to bring your friend to if she needs a kit or she needs assistance or help. Um, real easy stuff. Every community has one because they don't have enough and they don't have great funding. Um, is that what Gwinnett is in your um, neighborhood? Well, it's actually outside Metro Atlanta. The o- There's only one in Metro Atlanta. At what? Great- yeah. It's- for millions of people, there's one place. And uh, I was there for almost three years, and it, my belief is it has, has no business being in a level one trauma center. Yes, rape is a trauma. It is not the same kind of trauma. And to make a rape victim sit in a trauma room where gunshots and victims and burn victims and murder, you know, are being wheeled by is, oh, I have opinions on that. But um, yeah. Gwinnett, yeah. so now I, I volunteer there about 35 minutes north of where I am. But that's what they do. They serve a bunch of the counties and uh, and communities. And again, there's only one of them. Right. Hospitals in, don't have these kits just hanging out. They don't have trained staff to do them. Right. And in Tampa, just you know, for anyone who's local, that's the crisis center of Tampa Bay. Um, they do great work um, along with the spring. Um, the spring is focused more on um, removing people from domestic violence situations. Um, and getting them into a safe spot. Um, and then, you know, for you personally, Ms. Potts, <laughs> how can people follow you or, or keep track of what it is that you're doing in this world? Well, if you've stayed awake this long, and I, I laud you if you have, um, I'm on <laughs> Twitter. I'm Ms. Potts underscore ATL. Uh, that's my professional. So you'll get a lot of sports stuff there and some some um, anti-sexual violence uh, tweets. My strictly anti-sexual violence handle is AFB Woman. So that's for a fightback woman. It's AFB Woman. And my website's afightbackwoman.com. And there I have chronicled the last six or seven years of what I've gone through since I went public. And it's everything from recording what happened to me in the, in the mindset I had at that time to where I am now and to diving into issues with a much better perspective and understanding. So, you know, it's educational and as much as it might help you relate or, you know, find something that just resonates with you. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I'm, I don't even think I've gotten through 2010 yet. Um, yeah, it's right. Yeah. But there, you know, there's just so much there and, um, uh, and I know that, you know, for you, it, it is, it's just what you knew to do, but it is, it is a brave thing that you've done. And it's a, a gift to all of us, what you've, what you've accomplished in terms of, um, going through that entire process and sticking it out and, and recording it as it was happening. And then also the work that you do now is, you know, you're not only a 
real badass in, you know, the sports business world, but from a, you know, being, you know, a, a female advocate, um, you, you help so many people. And so I just want you to know how, um, thankful I am for you, um, and, and for sharing your stories and, and getting the training and doing the training that you do. I appreciate it. And, and folks such as yourself deciding to put a spotlight on it. Um, there's plenty of us out there. I just don't know that we've ever been that interesting <laughs> or desired for interviews. Um, again, it, it, we do the work of a, of a crime that happens in the dark and happens in the shadows right. and people still don't want to talk about it. They're super uncomfortable and they're uncomfortable means that it, we don't discuss it. And so anywhere, everyone who makes the choice to discuss it like you are is contributing to bringing it out into the light. So thank you. And anyone out there, you have it within your powers to do all sorts of things. I think if you are a leader who you want to be one, it's as simple as seeing a need and, and filling it. You see an opportunity and for assistance or information or education will fill that need. You don't need someone to tell you that. You know, these things become self-evident at a point. And this was one of those things that was just so obvious. I couldn't find anybody to help me. So I had to help myself, you know? Yeah. And then, you know, make a record so that other people could do it. Yeah. The record part Which, was really, it was therapeutic for me, but it was my way of helping. Yeah. yeah. I was real committed to that. I actually wrote that entire thing before I ever had my article come out. So that when the day the article came out in Marie Claire and they linked to the site, I already had 75 posts in the can <laughs> and yeah. set on a, a timer to post so that it's not like they go and they read one post and then they have to wait two weeks, you know? Right. Which is so smart. I mean, and it's, we're talking about 2010 that that happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I will have a link to the Marie Claire article because it's, it's astounding. And like I said, um, goes into more detail about um, the intricacies of, uh, of being a victim of such an assault while being a foreign national. Um, so um, thank you again for being here. I, you know, I hope we can, can continue these conversations and and know that um, you know my uh, I will use my platform as best as I can to help you achieve those goals. Well, I appreciate it. Now that we know each other, we'll never not know each other. So here's us. <laughs> Thank you all for listening to this very important episode. And thank you to Carrie so much for her openness and the incredible work that she does as a crisis counselor. As a reminder, if you would like to learn more about sexual violence or if you need help, please visit RAIN, that's RAIN like what comes from the sky, but with an extra N at RAINN.org. Or you can call the National Sexual Assault, Assault Hotline excuse me, at 800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. I know that the audio has been kind of fuzzy over the last two episodes. We are trying to figure out the cause. So thank you for sticking with us as I work through all these silly tech issues. Pretty please go to Apple Podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe to LTPF. 
I have absolutely loved hearing from those of you who have reviewed the podcast or sent an email to ltpfpod at gmail.com. You can catch the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com every week, or mostly every week. And we're on all of the social media, well, for the most part, um, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as LTPFPod. And then my personal Twitter account is at Bobby Sue. Enjoy the rest of your week. 